Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. We are recording for you guys on a Friday afternoon. There's a lot going on, right, Dars? Oh, yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know or who've never listened to this podcast before, I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. Hello. We do this fun, we, we do this fun little true crime <laughs> thing where we throw in some random stuff on the side or we'll talk about some current events in addition to one true crime story for the day. This week, we've got some interesting stuff for you folks. We are in the middle of an unprecedented time in history, as I've mentioned earlier on several podcasts before, but we are all sort of in these self-imposed quarantines where everyone is supposed to be working from home and we're not supposed to be going outside or we're supposed to minimize our time outside. They have now closed down all the beaches, trails, parks, everything here. Um, I don't necessarily think that is good. Um, I think when you force people to stay in their houses 24-7, you get a lot of issues with depression, anxiety, all that. And I don't think that's good for people. The beaches were really crowded. People were not staying six feet away from each other. So, like, I understand. I don't necessarily know that shutting down public parks and open spaces is the best thing to do. I don't agree with that. I mean, I understand limiting contact between people. I understand limiting, you know, social events where people might be crowded into the same areas, but I don't necessarily think that shutting down trails and parks and beaches is the best thing to do. I think we're, I mean, we're in a public health crisis and if people took it seriously from the beginning, I think maybe they wouldn't have had to shut down the beaches, but clearly people are not taking it seriously and like the beaches are crowded not just in California like in Florida and everything in Alabama you know so I I mean I understand not wanting to close it down and I understand if like not everybody had crowded the beach it would be one thing but they were I mean it was packed the beaches were just packed so Okay, let's make it clear. I don't really care about the beaches. I know, I know. But... <laughs> like, shut the beaches down. What I'm thinking about is the I trails know. because that's my like stress relief. I need to get out somewhere and, and have physical activity. I cannot stay in the house 24-7. I am going to go insane. It's, it's awful. I cannot do it. And to be told now that I can't go anywhere is just, it's devastating. It makes me feel like I am a prisoner. Well, you can go outside your house and go for walks around the block. Um, which yeah, is what I'm not everyone doing. lives in an area. Not everyone lives in an area where that is appropriate or safe or um, possible. I know, but I, I mean, I think it's the greater good is that this this kind of thing is necessary. I understand that that it is affecting people's mental well being, and that is a very serious issue. But the greater good, as far as public health is concerned is trying to contain the spread of this thing because it's spreading so fast well and we can't get this under control yeah because there are countries that are uh, not doing what we're doing that have similar levels of outbreak and they are measuring the numbers with those i think sweden is one of them where they're not doing a mandatory lockdown in the homes they're essentially allowing businesses to run as usual and just telling people they can't gather in groups larger than 10 and they shouldn't be within six feet of one another. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it that way instead of doing it the way we're doing it. I guess we'll, countries like that, we'll see. Yeah, we also have the highest number of cases now. So, you know, I mean... I didn't think we had gotten that far yet. I thought Spain and Italy were still Uh above us. But in any case, I don't really want to focus as much on this particular topic because I feel like it's depressing and people hear crap about it on the news 24 seven. 
But I did want to highlight one really <laughs> kind of interesting and important issue that I think has been popping up. Now, I did an episode on this show way back in the beginning about things called fatbergs. And they are these huge masses of grease, hair, paper towels, Kleenexes, toilet paper, and all kinds of other crap in the sewer systems that build up when people flush things they shouldn't be flushing down the toilet, right? Mm. So increasingly, sewer systems are becoming overrun and overloaded with people now during this particular time period when people are flushing baby wipes and all kinds of other things down the toilet, condoms, medications, all kinds of other things that we should not be flushing down the toilet. And I just want to take a moment to remind people that that is the last thing we should have to be worrying about during this time. So please don't flush those things because you don't, you know, you don't want to have to force this poor sewer guy to come out and clear out the tank or break the lines in front of your home so that people now have to come out to your area and fix things when you shouldn't be flushing any of that down the toilet. Yeah. Just yeah. a friendly reminder, folks. Don't flush your wet wipes. Don't flush any of anything down the toilet but toilet paper. Okay? Thanks. <laughs> um, it's a gross thing. It, it's totally it is gross. really gross. I think the, the article that we talked about in particular was based out of London. And they were talking about the world's largest fat ball to date. Ew. God. That had been collected and just absolutely a disgusting thing but evidently it is a major topic of concern for a lot of governments because we have high concentrations of populations in certain areas and everybody's flushing their toilet at once and people mm -hmm. are flushing a lot more non-biodegradable things down the toilet now than ever before right yeah Plastics. Which is interesting because <laughs> all kinds it of seems papers. like everybody and their mother went and bought a million rolls of toilet paper. Right? So you'd think they would be fine, but evidently, no. We're having some buildup of different kinds of things that are being flushed that shouldn't be flushed. Don't be flushing that stuff, people. And then I also read a study somewhere that was saying that they were finding now prescription medications in increasingly mm -hmm. high levels when they tested drinking water and water sources. Yikes. That's not good. And then the other thing was plastic particles. They were finding, you know, way higher levels of plastic, tiny little plastic particles within water systems. Hmm. That God knows how those are getting in there. In any case, um, we are going to jump into today's topic. Darcy has so graciously offered to do this week's episode as well. She's getting back into the swing of things and loving yep. her ability to be able to have a little free time to be able to do this stuff, despite the fact that the reasoning behind it is a little frightening. Right. Um, she has done this topic for today. Why don't you jump right in, Dars? Okay. So um, before I say like what it is we're talking about, I'm just going to kind of give a preface that this is going to be a very difficult topic. It's very sad. So just kind of listener discretion. On the night of December 6th, 2014, firefighters responded to calls of a car on fire on Heron Road in Cortland, Mississippi. Cortland is a tiny, tiny, tiny little town in North Mississippi. There's a population okay. of about 500, and it is not too far from the state line. I think it's about 70 miles from Memphis to kind of give you an okay. idea of where, where this is. So when first responders arrived on the scene, they found 19-year-old Jessica Chambers with burns on 98% of her body. Jesus. 
and it was immediately clear that Jessica had been doused with fuel and set on fire along with her vehicle. And the fire was so hot that it turned her white car almost completely black. It incinerated her clothes and it blinded her. And Jessica was immediately airlifted to a Memphis hospital, but she passed away just about six hours later from her injuries. So this is the story of Jessica Chambers. So who was Jessica Chambers? Jessica was a former high school cheerleader. She had recently started a new job in nearby Batesville, Mississippi. By all accounts, she had been a good student in school. She had earned A's and B's, but according to friends, she kind of had recently fallen in with a pretty rough crowd. She had started doing drugs, and some suspected that she was actually selling drugs. And from what I've gathered, just in kind of the the many different sources I've looked at this, it depends on kind of who you talk to about this. So one friend said that she was selling marijuana, which is, you know, not that big of a deal. Um, there's other, there were other people that said she was selling methamphetamine or cocaine okay. or something like that. So it's not super clear, but everybody did kind of say she had kind of started hanging out with a pretty rough crowd. So she actually had dropped out of South Panola High School after Christmas of her senior year. And I'm not sure if she ever w- finished and got her GED or went back to school. There is a picture. If you look up Jessica Chambers, there is a picture. It's like a graduation studio portrait, you know? So I'm not actually sure if she did graduate from high school or earn her GED, but that picture does exist. And we are, of course, we're talking about Mississippi, and Jessica was a white woman, and she dated black men. So this was kind of an issue for um, some people, not necessarily people in the town, but on social media kind of after her death. There was a Facebook account set up and everything, and then, of course, the race issue exploded. Her dad even was kind of unaccepting of the relationships of her dating black guys. Um, And he said that, you know, he has no issue with black people, but he didn't believe in interracial relationships. So, oh, boy, that's that's (laughs) what he said. You know, so those are those things even like go together. Like, come on. Yeah, it's one of that's one of those things. Unfortunately, that is very common in the South. And there's a documentary on oxygen that I watched. And it's kind of one of those things where all of the. Black people that they interviewed said, yeah, Cortland and Batesville, this is a really racist area. It's still pretty segregated. And then you have all the white people that they interviewed say, it's not racist. We've moved past that. So it's kind of just one of those <laughs> things. So, oh. yeah. So that's just kind of the environment that we're talking about right now for Jessica and, and Cortland, Mississippi. So in the summer of 2014, she actually ended up going to a rehabilitation facility for women called Leah's House, and she stayed there for 30 days. I don't believe this was for drugs. I'm not exactly sure what kind of situation this was, but it was. she did stay at a home for women um, for 30 days. And according to friends, after the stay, she was starting to turn her life around. She started going back to church and was kind of getting back on a good path. Like I said, she just started this job. She was working at a department store. But a few weeks before her murder, things were kind of starting to go south again. And in the weeks specifically before her murder, she told her mother that she was being threatened and had told her dad that people thought that she was a snitch because her dad worked for the sheriff's department. He was like an auto mechanic for the sheriff's department. And because of that, apparently people in town thought that she was cooperating and was an informant for the police. Okay. So So she kind of had a target on her back. 
she she said that. So you know, I okay. I don't know if that's an objective thing. So that's what she reported. That's what her parents okay. reported that she said. You know. So on the day of her murder, Jessica received a phone call a little bit before 5.15 p.m. and left the house. She told her mom that she was going to get something to eat and clean out her car. So between 5.24 p.m. and 5.30, Jessica's seen on a surveillance camera at the local gas station convenience store. So, like, this is a really small town, so this is kind of like a gathering spot this convenience store is going to come up a lot. So there's kind of okay. a lot of activity around this convenience store. So she pumps some gas. And about 6 o'clock, phone records show she's on her way to Batesville, which is just about 10 minutes away. At 6.30, she, phone records show her back in Cortland, near the same convenience store. And at 6.48, she calls her mom. The call lasted a little bit over a minute. And Jessica's mom reported that there was, no, there was no background noise or music or anything. And she found that pretty unusual. Whenever she called, there was always kind of some background noise or whatever. And she thought right. maybe Jessica was with somebody because there was no background noise. At 7.30, her phone pings on the tower put her on the scene at Heron Road, where she will later be found. Okay. And her phone goes silent. It stops sending a signal at 8.04 p.m. And at 8.07 p.m., the 911 call is received reporting a burning vehicle. So first responders reported that when they got to the scene, Jessica was burned beyond all recognition and her car was still on fire. I am not going to get into the details of her injuries because they were so completely horrific you can find the details online if you are interested, but I'm just not going to get into them here. She, like I said, she had third degree burns over 95, 98% of her body. And it was, it was just horrific. So okay. when the first responders asked her, who did this to you? They reported that she responded by saying either Eric or Derek. Okay. Okay. And according to one report, a first responder actually wrote that she said Eric as if the first responder she's talking to knew who that was. So, like, she said it as if, like, Eric did this. You know who Eric is to the first responder. That was his report. The autopsy showed her official cause of death as smoke inhalation and thermal injuries. And investigators, based on the first responder's reports, interview over 150 people. So... They're talking to friends. They're talking to ex-boyfriends. They say they interviewed everybody named Eric or Derek from that that county, Panola County, and the surrounding counties. But this turns up no leads. Okay. All right. So this goes on for over a year. And about a year later, a little bit over a year later, police announced that they have arrested somebody. 27-year-old Quentin Tellis is indicted for Jessica's Not murder. Eric or Derek. <laughs> Not Eric or Derek, okay, Quinton Tellis. Yeah. Okay. So he is indicted for Jessica's murder. And when he was originally interviewed by police during an early investigation, because her, his contact info was in her phone, he said he was not with Jessica on the night that she was murdered, but phone records seem to indicate otherwise. Okay. Okay. So records show that Quentin and Jessica's phones are in near proximity multiple times throughout the day and night of December 6th, 2014. In the days leading up to her murder, Quentin had texted Jessica multiple times asking her to come over for sex, and apparently she had declined each time. 
So he would send her texts like, come over, or I'm horny, or something, and she would just say, like, oh, Lord, I can't, or something like that. Right. At 10 a.m. on December 6th, Quentin sent a text to Jessica that said, quote, I'm ready. And then just a few minutes later, Jessica is seen on the surveillance camera at the convenience store. She talks to a couple people, and then she drives across the street to Quentin's house. So his driveway sits, or his house sits, kind of back off the road, and it is just just up the road and across the street from the convenience store. So one of the cameras actually does show a part of his driveway. So you can see cars going in okay. and out, but it's kind of it's far enough away that you can't make out a whole lot about the cars. You can just see them going in and out of the driveway, right? Right. And you cannot see any of the buildings on on the the property. Okay. After Jessica picks him up, they spend about thirty minutes driving around Cortland, and then Jessica drops Quentin off at the convenience store and leaves. So it kind of seems like maybe they were driving around smoking weed or something. I think is what Quentin said. Okay. Quentin walks back to his house at around 4.30 that afternoon. Jessica texts Quentin to tell him she's going to get some food with him if he will pay for it. And he kind of responds with, like, I'll pay for it if you sleep with me. Like, he kind of says something along those lines. And a little after 5, Quentin walks back to the convenience store, but he doesn't purchase anything. And he leaves the store and then starts walking south down the road, away from his house. At... 5.30, Jessica's at the convenience store. She calls Quentin and then pulls out of the convenience store and heads south the same way that he's walking. It okay. So when Jessica called at 5.30, she didn't get him. She got his voicemail. But at 5.34, Quentin calls Jessica back. This is the last phone call that Quentin makes for 48 minutes. So he would later tell investigators that he was calling Jessica to pick him up. So like he said initially... I wasn't with her that night, and then they present him with this evidence, and he's like, oh, wait, no, I do remember that. So this is when we did this, blah, blah, blah. So he changes the story, right? Hmm. So okay. now is when we have the phone records putting Jessica's phone on the way to Batesville, and at 6.30, they are back in Cortland. Quentin tells investigators that they went back to his house and that they had sex in, like, an offshoot driveway on his property. In a drive In the car? Yeah, in the car. Ew. He was in the passenger seat. The passenger seat was reclined and that she was on top of him and they were having sex. And that when they found the car, the passenger seat was reclined. All right. Okay. From 649 to 726, neither Jessica nor Quentin's phones are active. Okay. And at this point, you see headlights leaving Quentin's driveway at 726. But the, the video is so grainy, you can't even see what kind of car it is. You just see headlights. At 7.42, Quentin calls Jessica's phone, and he leaves her a voicemail. Then he sends a text right away to Jessica's phone to say, Hey, my friend's coming over. I'll call you tomorrow. Have a good night. And that, by that, he meant, like, a girl was coming over. Oh. After he okay. just had sex with her. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so, like a real winner. So Quentin would tell investigators that it was a local girlfriend, but when they asked him if this local woman could confirm his alibi, he says, no, no, it was actually an out-of-town girlfriend. And there are phone records to show that this out-of-town girlfriend was calling Quentin that night to try and come to town. Okay. Okay. At 7.48, Quentin calls this out-of-town girlfriend and says that he is walking to his sister's house to ask if he can borrow her car. 
and at because Quentin does not have a car. If that's okay. not clear. So at 7.50, a vehicle is seen driving down Quentin's driveway toward a storage shed. But again, the video is too grainy. We don't know what kind of car it is. There's just a right. car going to, you know, this, this storage shed. Okay. Quentin would later tell the FBI that he had a five-gallon container of gasoline that he kept in the shed. All right? Mm-hmm. At 7.52, the vehicle is seen leaving the driveway. So the the car pops down the driveway two minutes, pops back out. Between 8 and 8.23, Quentin calls the out-of-town girlfriend five times, and cell phone evidence shows that he is at a local grocery store and a nearby pharmacy. He's also on their surveillance camera at the uh, pharmacy. Notably, though, his phone is silent from 7.46 to 8 p.m. Huh. And so... After about 9 o'clock, he goes back to the convenience store, and that's when he overhears people talking about this car fire, and that's when he finds out what happens to Jessica. Oh, boy. He, he does not make any attempt to call her or text her phone. Well, why would he? Well, because he doesn't know she's died. She hadn't died yet. Oh, so, like, they just said there was a car fire, so she could be alive. Any, nothing, right. They didn't say anything happened right. to her. Yeah, just her car was on fire okay. or something. And so, but a couple days later, he deleted all the texts, all the phone calls, and her contact info from his phone. Why would he do that? Yeah. So, there's all this evidence, right? That's not, that's not looking great. Doesn't look good. So, when he is indicted, he actually was in Wachita Parish, Louisiana, in a jail being held on charges connected to the death of a University of Louisiana Monroe exchange student. What? He had apparently known the exchange student, and after she went missing, he was found using her bank card. Her body was later found in her apartment, and she had been stabbed to death. Okay? The age? So, he, right now, he's only charged but with using her card. Okay. He was transferred from Louisiana to Mississippi on capital murder charges and the murder of Jessica Chambers. All right. Okay. The trial begins on October 10th, 2017. And the trial was held in Panola County, which is where Cortland is. But the jury was brought in from Pike County, 200 miles away, so that they could make sure that they got people who had not already heard too much about the case, which is kind of difficult because... Once this happened, it was kind of like a national story, but they did what they could. Yeah. I basically just laid out the prosecution, all of their evidence that they're going to present at trial, right? And their theory is that he wanted to have sex with Jessica and that he murdered her after she rejected him. All right. Quentin's defense is essentially that up to, you know, 10 to 15 first responders at the scene said that Jessica said Eric did this. And his name's Quentin. So ba- that's basically their defense. It's like she said the killer's name, and that is not our defendant's name. Basically, that's their defense. Oh, my God. So, that's it. This is, a cr- this is a crack legal team. So. <laughs> they are definitely on their game. The, <laughs> The prosecution in the trial calls 
a burn expert, Dr. William Hickerson, uh-huh. and he stated that due to the severity of her burns to her mouth and throat, it would have been just impossible for her to have said anything co- coherent. Up to 15 people, though, said that she said her name was Jessica and that Eric did this. Wow. And this doctor, this bad, burns, burn expert, says there's no way she could have said it. Okay. A firefighter, Cole Haley, testified, and watching his testimony in the documentary is just, it's brutal. It's, he's, he's so wrecked after seeing this. Well, who um, wouldn't be? Like, he, he, yeah, he's crying and all of this stuff. And um, he talks about what he saw when he reported to the scene. And it, what he talked about was so horrific that he could barely get through it. And he actually ended up leaving the fire department after this whole ordeal because he was so messed up. So like I said, Quentin did admit to having sex with Jessica, right? But he doesn't say they had sex that day. He said they had had sex once before, about a week before. And there was no evidence in the autopsy that Jessica had had sex that day and a rape kit wasn't performed. Oh, Jesus. Right? So that's just issue number one with the prosecution's evidence. Well, I I can't. That sucks that they didn't, but at the same time, I'm sure the concern at that point in time when they found her was to keep her alive mm-hmm. and to save her life, and that was probably the... So I'm sure that the whole concept of doing a rape kit was, like, in the background. Yes, but they could have performed one with the autopsy. Oh, really? Yeah. They can do that? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So... And the burning wouldn't impact the ability I'm not, to find I'm not DNA. clear what the severity of her burns were in that region. Okay, okay, interesting. Go yeah, ahead. so also at the trial, a first responder reported seeing a middle-aged black male walk up to the crime scene, okay? The first responder tells the guy, look, this is a crime scene, you can't be here, you need to leave. And this guy testifies that the man who just walks up to the crime scene looked at him as if he was looking through him. The guy said, like, it gave him a chill, the stare he was giving him. And he wasn't looking at him. He was looking into the woods, looking at the car. Okay? And then... Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, what if he's just an innocent bystander who's fascinated? I mean, yeah. if I walked by and saw something like that, I would probably do the same thing. Yes, you would. And that's valid point. But nobody investigated this guy. Nobody got his name. Nobody talked to him to see who he was, what he, why he was there, if he was just a bystander or what he was doing. Nobody, they didn't follow up on it, okay? And first responders apparently did give investigators a tag number to the car that this person was in, but it doesn't appear that anybody did anything with that information. Okay. So the lead investigator had the car moved to an impound lot about an hour after the fire was put out. So they didn't really do a good job of securing the crime scene. All right, so some things were overlooked. Like the car was up on like a embankment off the side of the road and it was kind of wedged between some trees up against a fence. Well, they only looked on the public side of the fence. So like the road side of the fence, they never went behind the fence and her car was up against the fence. So was there evidence behind the fence? We don't know, they never looked, we don't know. All right. Hmm. And I don't, you know, there's no indication that anybody stayed at the scene overnight to make sure nobody went back and like visited the scene and messed with anything. So just they didn't do a good job with this crime scene. Okay. Clearly. So, you know, two days after 
Jessica's murder on December 8th, her keys were found about a quarter mile from the crime scene on the side of the road. All right. But here's the thing about the keys. They were found by a man named Jerry King, mm-hmm. who was pushing his daughter's stroller down the road. And when he saw the keys, he picked them up and handed them to his one-year-old daughter while they oh, walked back to the house. No. So when they get back to the house, he recognizes the keychain that has, like, the auto store for Jessica's dad on it. Uh-huh. And that's when he puts it together and he calls the police. All right? Oh, no. The police go to Jerry King. They meet him where he claims to have found the keys. They put them back on the ground, and then that's when they take the evidence pictures. What the hell? How was that so, good evidence? Yes. <laughs> so we have no idea. It's only his word that that's where we found the keys. And turns out this Jerry King guy is not exactly credible. So he has a pretty extensive criminal history, including indecent exposure, grand larceny, and resisting arrest and obstruction of justice. Wow. Is there anybody so, that's like clean and normal in this case? Uh, that, that firefighter guy? <laughs> so Pretty much. One of the first responders that was interviewed for this Oxygen documentary I watched says that he thinks that Jerry is lying about the keys. He knows Jerry, and he says, I think he's lying. I, you know, I wouldn't put anything past him as far as whether or not he could have actually been the one to do this. Okay. Oh, jeez. But again, so his name is not Eric or Derek. Yep. <laughs> Just saying. Right. Right. Just want to make so that clear. <laughs> they take the keys and they send them off to the Mississippi, you know, lab, crime lab. And lab results show a mixture of four ba- male baby saliva DNA. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's four <laughs> males DNA. OK. Jerry King's results were inconclusive. And Quentin Tellis could not be excluded. Hmm. Okay, That doesn't mean he was that, that his DNA was on there. It just means they could not exclude him. So there's two. So basically, or maybe, it's nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's two or maybe even three unidentified male contributors on the keys that we don't know who they are, right? And a number of items from the scene, so like the car and the surrounding area, were tested. And while gas, uh, gasoline was found on a few of the items, the majority of them came back without any accelerant at all. And so, so useless, useless information. Pretty much. Yeah. And there's no indication that the pieces of evidence that actually had the gasoline on them were actually from Jessica or the car. So like there was a piece of cloth that they sent that had gasoline on it. But was that a piece of cloth from Jessica's clothing or was it just a piece of cloth that somebody threw on the side of the road? You know, right. there's no they don't know. So that's kind of this is kind of how the trial is going for the state right now. All right. So let's talk about the cell tower evidence, because this gets a little bit into like Adnan and Heyman Lee. Okay. now this was 11 years. So in case the listeners don't know that case. Yeah. So that was a murder case in (laughs) in Baltimore. The podcast serial did about it. Um, Basically, the entire thing hinges on cell tower evidence. And that was in 2000. So presumably it was a murder case. where A guy presumably killed his. That was his girlfriend, right? Ex-girlfriend, yeah. Ex-girlfriend in Baltimore. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, we'll drop a thing in the, in the notes as well. So you can go check that out. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. Um, so presumably in 2014, technology is better, right? But we are in a hmm. very rural area 
Okay. Right. So there's going to be a little, you know, kind of question about the cell tower evidence. So the cell tower evidence that they have placed Jessica and Quentin together at the time of the murder, right? Okay. Or, that, you said that earlier, right? Or, or do they? Because according to the intelligence analyst who testified at the trial, they only looked at Jessica's phone. Okay. What? They looked at her phone at 5.30 p.m., where she was seen on camera at a convenience store, right? So that they take that one thing, and that is a known location, and they look at the cell tower evidence. Well, the cell tower shows her about a half mile away from that, okay? What? So then they say, okay, well, the next place we, ha- we know where she was was the murder scene at about 8 o'clock, between 7.30 and 8, right? We know she was there because that's the murder scene. Cell tower evidence there places her again a little bit farther away. We don't know if that's a half mile or not. It's not said in this documentary that I watched, okay? So, but again, it's not right on top of where they know she is, all right? So what the intelligence analyst did is he basically shifted the cell tower evidence a half mile over so that it would overlap where they know she is at the convenience store and at the murder scene, all right? And they use this evidence, this shifted evidence, to fill in the gap between the times where they know she was. It's like they had a fourth grader do this. They were like, hey, son, I've got a cool project for you. (laughs) Why don't you help us with this case? And basically, the, the pings that her phone's giving off when they shifted the data, the pings are right over Quentin Tellez's house and surrounding property. So to them, they're saying, this means she and Quentin are together. All right? Wow. But that's extrapolated data. That's not concrete data that they're actually getting from the the towers. That's them shifting the data. That methodology wouldn't get published in a scientific paper. Okay? And you're going to tell me that you want me, if I'm a juror, you want me to convict somebody on a capital murder charge based on extrapolated data? Yeah, but I don't That's think what that the average me. jury member has your kind of intelligence. I think that they probably I know. just shake their heads and say yes. But to me, that immediately is a red flag for appeal. But exactly, anyway, that's probably exactly what you're like at. yes. So so that so basically, they're saying, look at this data. We've we had this theory. We looked at the data. We shifted it to match our theory. That's what they did. Essentially, right? yeah. So. Um, And like I said, they only used Jessica's data because when they got Quentin's data, which they did get, it basically did not give them a distance from the cell tower. So it only told them what tower he was pinging off of, but not how far away from that tower he was. Yeah. So he was was like running around all over the place, the grocery store, the pharmacy. Right. So they're, they're taking this and saying, because we were able to shift Jessica's cell phone data and put her at Quentin's house, but we don't actually know where Quentin's phone is, that means they're together. That's basically their argument. Uh. All right? So, based on all of this, what I'm telling you, do you think Quentin Tellis did this? Um, I would be curious to hear about that other case, too. Because... But if you're a jury, if you're a juror, you can't hear about that People don't normally do... 
I know, but people don't normally do like one bad thing and then float off into the distance. There's usually like a whole chain of bad things. Well, he had had he'd had some up. some criminal convictions before, burglary and things like that. He did not have any violent crime uh, charges against him up until this point. Um, but he did have a criminal history. But I know, but just because the police and all them like used shoddy investigative tactics doesn't necessarily mean he didn't do it either. Yeah, I'm just asking Which you what sucks. you think. It's just it's it's it sucks because I think that there are instances where guilty people get away get away with doing bad things because the police do a bad job in investigating mm-hmm. or the prosecutor brings crappy theories forward. Mm-hmm. And that allows for the ability to appeal or um, get off scot-free because people point out that, hey, you used this terrible way to investigate mm-hmm. and we can't possibly prosecute this person based on the evidence you provided from that investigation. Right. So I think it's the way they describe it is the fruit of the... Uh, the if the fruit the fr- of, is tainted, then the, the, entire, the, investi- the entire investigation is tainted. Yes, something, it's something like that, tree. where if one little piece of that investigation mm-hmm. is tainted, then the entire investigation has the to be thrown The fruit of the poison up, tree, I think. Or thrown up, yes. So if one little aspect of that investigation is faulty, then the entire investigation has to be thrown right. out. Right. And it, it can let a guilty person potentially walk free. So what, so what do you think? Do you think he did it? Um... I don't think that based on the evidence that you've presented thus far that I'm 100% certain that he did it. I think he looks shady AF. Yeah. But I don't think that the evidence that you've presented to me at this point is enough for me to conclusively say beyond a reasonable doubt that I think this guy did it. Yeah. Now, granted, you are not looking at the court documents. No, I'm not. not presenting and providing all the evidence that the prosecution did when they tried this case. Correct. So there could potentially be a lot of evidence out there that we are just not privy to that they have kept under under the vest or close to the vest so that p- the general popu- general population doesn't get yeah. all that information. Right. And that is not unusual. Right. And that's absolutely correct. All right. So... On October 16th, 2017, so basically this trial lasts about a week, all right, the jury comes back with a verdict, okay? So they file back in. The judge asks the foreman of the jury if all 12 jurors agreed on the verdict, and the foreman says, yes, they all agreed. Then one juror says, just pops out and says, we all didn't agree on it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And the judge says, what? (laughs) You didn't agree? And the juror says, no verdict has been read, okay? The, all that said is, we didn't agree. You all didn't agree. And then the juror comes back and says, no, I didn't agree. He was innocent. So that tells you what the, their verdict that they were about to read was going to be, that, that he was wait, not wait, guilty. Wait, wait, wait. Does he say, I didn't agree that he was innocent? Or does he say, I didn't agree he was innocent? Huge difference. I didn't agree he, that he was innocent. The, this guy is saying, no, the verdict that you're about to read is saying not guilty. I don't agree okay. with that verdict. Okay. That's Got what it. this guy's saying. Okay. So the, that's how basically everybody in the court found out that the verdict was going to be not guilty. All right. By the juror saying this. So the judge rereads the instructions to the jury and sends them back for more deliberations. Wait. All right. Oh, 12 to 0, guilty. 12 to 0, not guilty. That's at least at Mississippi. Um, so 
So the judge rereads the instructions and sends the jury back for more deliberations. 30 minutes later, the jury comes back. Once again, the foreman says all 12 jurors agreed on the verdict. The jury finds him not guilty in the murder of Jessica Chambers. All right. One of the prosecutors, they're sitting at the table, and he goes, something's, something's not right. You need, to, you need to poll the jury. Okay. So they asked the jury individually how they voted. Seven jurors reported that they voted guilty. They thought that if they could not unanimously agree that he was not guilty by default. So like what you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. That if we cannot agree on this, if we can't agree 12 to 0 guilty, that defaults to not guilty. All right. That oh, is what they thought. <laughs> Ultimately, this jury cannot all agree on a verdict of either guilty or not guilty. So the judge declares a mistrial. All right. Oh, my God. So the retrial was set to start on September 24th, 2018. Three months before this, Quentin Tellis' defense attorneys file a motion accusing the DA of coercing an inmate to testify against Quentin in exchange for a lenient sentence. Basically, what happened was this inmate was a cell, like, shared a cell with Quentin, and the DA comes to him and says, do you know Quentin? Yes. I need you to testify against him. And in exchange, I'm going to give you a lighter sentence. And what he wanted, what this, this, the DA wanted this inmate to say is that Quentin told him that when he first met Jessica, he told her his name was Eric. What? So that's how this DA is attempting to get around this Eric or Derek issue because he can't get around this issue. So he wants an inmate to say Quentin told her his name was Eric. Okay. They have a trial on this, they have a hearing or whatever, and the judge basically finds out, the DA obviously denies everything, and the judge basically finds that there was not enough information just based on the inmate testimony alone to remove the DA from this case. So we're moving forward. All right. Oh, boy. So in the second trial, the prosecution, it's pretty much laid out the exact same way. They bring in another, they bring in the the burn expert physician again and they also bring in a speech language pathologist just more people saying there's no way she would have been understandable she couldn't have spoken right and they want to take the jury out on a nighttime field trip to the scene of the crime claiming that they can recreate the scene with all the lights and noises in an attempt to prove how difficult it would be to understand jessica what she was trying to say so you just they just presented two experts that are like she couldn't have talked and then they're like, but let's go to the scene and recreate all of the chaos at the scene so that if, even if she were to have talked, you wouldn't be able to understand it. Which argument are you going with? Let's spend a couple hundred thousand more dollars of taxpayer money yes. on a completely fruitless effort. Anyway. Exactly. So obviously the defense objects to this and the judge is like, nope, let's do it. So they go out there and it's just pitch black. And the only thing that you see are like the emergency lights. They don't even have the sirens on or anything, obviously, because they're trying to prosecutor trial so it's quiet and they're just it's just everybody's in the dark now and the prosecution and defense are trying to ask questions right so the prosecution questions the investigator and then turns over the witness to the defense and in the middle of cross the judge is like all right look this is ridiculous we can't have court out here in the dark let's go back to the courthouse 
in the middle of the cross. So the defense now has lost that opportunity to cross-examine, okay? So the other thing about this trial is they did not bring in Jerry King to testify, the guy who found the keys, okay? Well, Prosecution I mean, says... Why does he need to testify? Well, yeah, that's a good point. He didn't. <laughs> um, Pointless. But the, the prosecution claimed they couldn't find him, but his ex-girlfriend says, no, he was in town. She, I just don't think they wanted him to testify because of his past convictions and the fact that he's not a reliable witness. He has a history of substance abuse. She's like, I don't think he could have kept his story straight. Okay. So... The prosecution also calls a man named Mike Sanford, who is one of Quentin's alibi witnesses. Quentin says that he was with Mike that night. All right. Mike testified that on the night of December 6, 2014, he was in Nashville. So he couldn't have been with Quentin that night. All right. The defense then calls Quentin's sister to testify that, no, she was with Mike all day that day in Cortland. And they were all with Quentin together. Okay. So... It just seems like so many aspects of this case are just, like, people throwing a bunch of, like, spaghetti on the wall and trying to see which noodles stick. Like, on both yeah. sides. Yeah. Well, and the defense actually, the defense attorneys actually do a really good job of cross-examining all of the expert witnesses and stuff. And they're like, you know, okay, you're saying that based on your expert testimony that she could have made these, made you know, made words and sounded coherent but we have 15 people that said she did. And the guy's like, well, I wasn't there. And she's like, yeah, no. So that's kind of how the defense is playing it, you know? So anyway, so after six days of this trial, both sides rest their case. And after 12 hours of deliberations, the jury comes back and tells the judge that they are hopelessly deadlocked. Not surprising. Six to six. All right, so once again, the judge declares a mistrial. That was in 2018. So the DA has not committed to retrying Quentin Tellis and the murder of Jessica Chambers at this point. The reason for that is that Quentin Tellis is currently in jail in Wachita Parish, Louisiana, where he was sentenced to 10 years for unauthorized use of a credit card. And he has also subsequently been charged in the second degree murder of Louisiana Monroe student, exchange student, Ming Chen Sao. All right. Okay. He has entered a not guilty plea in that case. But it has not gone to trial as of today. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. So this case is, it's just, it's it's horrible what happened to this, this girl, this young woman. Okay, so in your opinion, though, so if Quentin didn't do it, who did? I'm glad you asked that question because Quentin told the investigators when they first interviewed him that there's a guy named Derek Holmes who had been ah. stalking Jessica. Okay. They look into Derek. He is a convicted sex offender. He says he was at home rubbing his mama's feet. His Gross. mom has a medical condition. Okay. And that he was home rubbing her feet. Who did they check this alibi with? Mom. Mom. His mom. Mama. And so they said, nope. And they just said, he's, he's fine. Exactly. And then just let it go. Yep. The other thing is uh, Quentin's sister 
one of his sisters has the name Eric tattooed on the back of her hand. All right. One of, one of Quentin's sisters? Yep. Has the name Eric tattooed on the back of her hand. Okay. So when she's asked about this in the documentary, it's a former boyfriend. He's not in her life. She's had the tattoo for like six or seven years. And he's not, he doesn't live in town. Okay. So this couldn't be the, the Eric she's talking about. However, in the murder of Ming Chen Sao, this same Eric was the informant that provided the information that got Quentin arrested for the, the murder of Ming Chen Sao in Monroe, Louisiana. What? So you think basically somebody did this to her and the same person set Quentin up for the second murder by just leaving, killing the scroll and leaving the card thinking that Quentin would be dumb enough to use it and thus implicate himself. I have no idea. I have no idea. That's just like, it's just they are, they are connected in that way and that the, the lead informant on the case used to date Quentin Tellis's sister and she has his name tattooed on hmm. her hand and that happens to be the name that Jessica said when she was dying. Like, I don't know if they're, if it was like, I don't, it does, I don't think they tried to set him up by murdering the student in Monroe, Louisiana. I think that's a little far-fetched. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they set him up at all. I, I just, it, it's just, these things are connected in some weird way. It might be just purely coincidental. It might not. I don't know. I don't know Eric's, this Eric's story. I don't know how long he's been in Louisiana. Was he in Mississippi at the time of the murder? I don't know. Clearly, he has contacts in town you know i think you it's very convoluted first of all it's so convoluted it's clear that somebody got away with committing murder so far yeah and so like i said they have not committed to retrying the case which i actually think is a really good idea because they still clearly think quentin tellus did this i'm not convinced based on the prosecution that they've put on so far, I'm not, I don't think they can get a conviction with the evidence that they have. And I think that it's probably in their best interest to wait until more evidence comes and they still have the possibility to retry him if they get more evidence, you know? Right. Rather than Just... try again and get an acquittal or something. Right. And, it, and then they can't, and then they're done. Right. They get that one bite of the apple right. and they don't get a further chance. And it is very clear that regardless of what, you know, what you think, I think, what anybody in the world thinks, it's very clear to the residents of Cortland and Batesville that race plays an issue in this case. You know, we have black defendants. We have a, a young, pretty white girl. And it does not appear that her family at all thinks that this is, you know, it doesn't appear that they had any issue with her dating black guys. Her, her dad did, but her mom clearly did not. And I don't think it comes from her family. I think it's more on the side of law enforcement in the city. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's clearly something that is felt by the black residents of this area and their interactions with law enforcement. And there's they talk to there is there are gangs up in this area and they talk to a, a gang member and he basically says he kind of says it to be funny but he's also serious he says you have to be a dumb black man to kill a white girl in mississippi 
I mean, because 50 years ago, there wouldn't even be a trial. You know what I mean? So that's kind of... And then to do it in a way that was like so horrific and so attention-grabbing by lighting it on fire. Like, that just seems ridiculously stupid. Yeah. And she was alive when when she was set on fire, you know, and so it's it's just it's horrible. The injuries that she suffered are so horrible. And it's just terrible that she had to go through this and I just so I don't know. Hang on one sec. I'm not really clear. Was she stabbed or like shot or and burned or was she just no. burned? She was just burned. And how did he did he pour gasoline all over her and light her on fire? Like is that the consensus yeah. on how that happened? Yeah. Okay. So he basically it, beat her up what, and then lit her on fire? There's no evidence of, like, inju- like bruising or injuries. So how did she let somebody just pour gasoline on her and light her on fire? Like- so what, what the prosecution said at the first trial was that they believed that he wanted to have sex with her, she turned him down, and that something happened during, or that they maybe had consensual sex or something, and that something happened during the act of sex that... She, that he thought he she he'd suffocated her or something. They don't provide any evidence of this, but they just they they think that they make it kind of sound like their argument is that he suffocated her or she was somehow unconscious. They had some rough sex. And that he drove her to the crime scene, walked back. That's when he was, you know, calls the other girlfriend and says, I'm walking to get my sister's truck, walks back, gets to the gas can, drives to the crime scene, and then sets her on fire. To so kind of get rid of the she evidence. Was unconscious. So he thought he killed yeah. her. So he was like, shoot, I've got to, like, get rid of the body or the evidence. Yeah. So that's when he lights her on fire. That is what the prosecution's kind of theory is, which is obviously that they don't have to prove that, right? Like, that's just to kind of fit their storyline. That's not part of their actual burden of proof. But that that's kind of what they maintain is kind of how this went down. Interesting. I'm not convinced of their story at all. Of, of, of some kind of rough act and him thinking she was dead and lighting on fire. But, I mean, the thing is, if she was alive and conscious and, and feeling fine, she would never have let him pour gasoline on her and burn her. Right. I'm saying I'm not convinced that he is the person responsible. For doing that. Yeah. But that somebody did something like that. Yeah. I think she... I think you're right. I think she probably would have had to be unconscious for this to have happened because she would have fought back, Right. So I think yeah. I think she would have had to have been unconscious or in some way incapacitated for somebody to have done this to her. But if that was the case, how would she know it was Derek or Eric if she was unconscious? I don't know. Okay, then. I don't know. That's another good question. That wasn't even brought up. All righty. Yeah. So basically, we know nothing. We know nothing. Other than Quentin used um, a credit card that did not belong to him, and that person, the owner of that card, ended up murdered we do know that well just because he used the card doesn't mean he killed her right and i don't know anything about that other case i don't know any of the evidence he may have done it he may not have done it i don't know i just know i'm not convinced he's the person that's responsible for the murder of jessica chambers Uh uh-huh well um it's a very sad case i mean i'm sure her family is just still like stuck with everything that's involved with this and trying to find her killer and there's no closure and right seems like an awful awful way to die and her dad says you know he doesn't think they should retry it it's a waste of taxpayer money and they all feel like they know who did it and 
that seems to be enough right now for them because it was really difficult to go through that second trial and see the pictures and, you know, the mother testified and that was very difficult for them. So I think they are kind of at a place where they they, they feel like they know who's responsible and that's that's enough for them, I think, right now. Jeez. Awful. Especially because he is in jail for 10 years in Louisiana. So he is, you know, he's not able to do anything to somebody else. They think he did it. They think he did it. They're convinced that he did it. Huh. Interesting. Well, I suppose time will Mm -hmm. tell, or maybe it won't. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. That's a terrible, terrible story. And I think the prosecution just handled it horribly. It certainly did. But then again, I mean, we can always Monday morning quarterback the hell out of it. But the thing is, we don't really know the full extent of the evidence. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't have we're not privy to all of the information here. When articles like this come out, there's probably uh, I'd say maybe a quarter of the evidence available to the people that are writing it or used for by the people that are writing the articles. So um, at best, Mm -hmm. maybe 50 percent. But I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily have the ability to look at in these sorts of cases. So, And it was, the first trial was streamed live, and there I did follow the second trial I followed. There were reporters in the courtroom that were live tweeting it, so I did follow that. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't have all of the information that was presented to the jury. So, I, I mean, clearly, though, it was insufficient for a unanimous verdict either way. Right. Well, I mean, if any more updates to this come up, we'll definitely provide that to the listeners yep well being that this is such a sad and kind of grisly and gruesome case I just want to kind of bring up one positive note again at the end so that we don't leave the listeners with with a totally bitter taste in their mouths as we're dealing with a lot of other scary and anxiety inducing things going on right now but hey you know what Krispy Kreme is giving away a dozen donuts on Saturday Yeah, so get this. Evidently, what they're doing now is they're helping spread cheer during the challenging time by offering a free dozen donuts every weekend for you to share safely with friends, family, and neighbors who might not be able to see them in person right now. So starting tomorrow, which is, I believe, 328, they're going to start doing this, but... Customers who buy a dozen full-priced glazed donuts at participating U.S. stores can add one free dozen to their order each Saturday until further notice. The box includes 11 originally glazed donuts and one smiley face donut to pass along to someone special in your life. Customers can take advantage of it through delivery, drive-thru, or pickup. Um, You have to use the the code BSUITE when you're checking out online, but each free dozen is packaged separately with a tamper-proof seal, plus instructions on how to safely consume them. (laughs) Krispy Kreme recommends contactless drop-off in order to abide by social distancing best practices. Interesting. They're also thanking healthcare workers for their heroic work amid the coronavirus outbreak by providing members of the community with free dozen donuts over the next two weeks to redeem uh, to redeem these delicious donuts. All you have to do is show a badge at the drive-thru if you're a healthcare worker or emergency provider. Awesome. Good job, nice. Krispy Kreme. We love it. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And if you're at the grocery and you're stocking up and you see somebody who looks like they've just come off a shift at the hospital, you know, buy them groceries or something or buy them 
you know, help them out or something like that. Because, yes, exactly. Because they're really putting themselves out there um, for for us right now. And we need to do our part by staying home. Please stay home. And be compassionate to the workers that are out there having to work. Like, if you got to go to Starbucks or the grocery store, don't be mean to them. Smile at them yeah. and be nice. <laughs> They yeah. have to be stuck there. They don't have a choice. Yeah. So yep. be nice. So people who work at the grocery, people who work at restaurants, custodial staff, people in waste management, you know, people are still having to get take the trash. Um, yeah. Like you said, the sewer, you know, sewage people that work in the, with the sewage system, um, you know, people that are checking your utilities, people that drop off your mail. There's still people that are working and we need to be very thankful that they are still out there working to provide these services for us. Right. And we need to um, be aware and be grateful that people are out there doing this for us when we are doing our part by staying home and hopefully hopefully stop spreading this virus, contain the virus. Right. Well, this is the point in the podcast where we're going to say so long, farewell, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, just on a side note, if you have the time and you feel so inclined, we'd really, really, really appreciate it if you go leave us a review on Apple, iTunes, any one of the platforms that you get our podcast from. We really, really need this to be able to continue to provide quality content from you. It helps us to learn what you like and what you don't like. And if we need to improve, we love, love, love it. If you have suggestions, you can also send us an email or if you have show requests or that sort of thing, we're at bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We'll drop that into the show notes. Again, it's the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can also send us messages there. Go follow us. We post pictures. We post news articles. Um, so we do a lot of information that way too excellent and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild stuff good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your best life bye bye guys stay home